Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Stand with me as we read God's Holy Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, it says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Father, this morning... We have worshipped you and our heart overflows with the joy of our salvation because of our fellowship together and our, our singing of the hymns and especially that singing of the choir, Father. I just thank you for that blessing this morning and I pray that you've been glorified and honored through that. And now, Father, as we open your word, I ask that you turn our attention to you and to what you have to say this morning. I ask that you make very little of me and very much of yourself, that you may be glorified in this place. This today we pray in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've been with us as we've been working our way through Ephesians over the last two and almost three quarter years now, we're fast approaching the end, and, and Paul, as you know, has taken us through the doctrine in the first three uh, chapters of who we are in Christ, and, and then he told us in the, first, uh, in the fourth and the fifth chapter, the first part of the second section, really how that applies to our life and how those, those doctrinal errors are lived out in our, our marriages and our, our relationships with each other and our relationships and our jobs. And, and now he turns his attention to what uh, will happen <laughs> If you actually live that Christian life. See, because there's something that's guaranteed to happen if you live, live that Christian life. And it's the title of the message this morning. It says, stand for the battle rages. If you're willing to live the Christian life, you're stepping into a battle. And today we see that battle is raging all around us. It's just amazing how that battle is coming to light. It's going on in the spiritual realm, but it's making itself manifest in the physical realm that we live in. You see it everywhere that you go. It seems every day we have a new encounter with the physical manifestation of a spiritual battle. Now, I, I know even as I mentioned this spiritual battle that there's some that are going to turn off because you're thinking of ghosts and goblins and sci-fi and all the things that you see. But the Bible tells us there is a spiritual realm in which the battle for our souls is raging. <laughs> it's raging mightily. And if God says that there's a spiritual battle, I for one believe that there is. And I believe you can tell if you look at what's happening in our world, because how else can you explain what you see going on around us in the world today? I made a couple of notes about those things. Here we have a religion that literally despises Christians and any other religion that doesn't agree with them. And it's the fastest growing religion in the world. You know the religion. It's Muslim. They absolutely detest any religion that doesn't agree wholeheartedly with them, yet statistics show it is the fastest growing religion worldwide. I believe if the statistics were pulled in America, it would be the fastest growing religion in America. Yet it forces itself onto the scene with 
terror attacks and, and propaganda. It kills those who, who don't believe the things that they believe. It, it degrades women and children. It destroys churches and museums and all the artifacts of, of history so that it tries to wipe out the other religions. Yet the loudest voices that we hear uh, talking about religion are screaming that we accept the Muslim religion because they're a religion of peace. I don't get it. How does a religion of peace kill people that don't agree with them? How does a religion of peace terrorize whole countries? How does a religion of peace treat women and children like they do? How does a religion of peace tear down other people's beliefs in their churches, even mosques, in their museums? Yet the loudest voices we hear screaming are saying, no, we need to accept them because they're really a religion of peace. <laughs> Off of that subject to another one that's hot and, and handy at this time, the tolerant left. <laughs> the tolerant left, they're very tolerant. They're out marching against the right or the right's marching against the left. I can never figure out who's marching against who at this point in time. But they're out marching saying, hey, we demand an equal voice. Everybody should have the same voice. We, we should all be equal. Yet when a voice comes up that's opposite of theirs, what do they turn to? Terror. There's no other way to place it. They turn to terror attack on their own citizens because they don't agree. <laughs> and almost everyone has an opinion on how we should deal with it. it if, if you're at a restaurant or, or you're at a store very long or you're sitting at work, you hear the discussions. I wrote down a few of the things that, that I hear people say all the time. Uh, one of them says, hey, you know what? We just... Uh, we need to enforce some laws and do some things differently and all, but why can't we just let the president do his job? All will be well if he just does his job. That'll, that'll fix it. <laughs> then we have some says, oh, the, the government, they need to enforce the laws we already have. And then some say, no, they need to make new laws because a new law would, would solve it. And they say, Congress, you know, they should get to work and stop worrying about their own interests and worry about ours. And there's all this discussion about what will solve the racial divide, what will solve the problem with with domestic terror? What will solve the problem with the worldwide terror? And you hear all these discussions, and, and sadly, it, it even happens in the church when the discussions come up. I'm asked more often than I, I care to mention about these topics, <laughs> and I hear a discussion among Christians about what is going on. And sadly, there's something missing in all these discussions. There's something missing. And what's missing? A biblical worldview. I find it interesting. I happened to be listening to uh, uh, John MacArthur this uh, past week. Actually, it was the week before. And John had a question come to him in one of his open question sections of his church. He, he about once a quarter has way more guts than I do. He stands in a pulpit on a Sunday night. And anybody in his church that would like to can walk up to a microphone and ask him a question. And he'll answer it biblically on the spot. Um, we're not going to that. I'm, I'm not ready. You may be ready with questions. I'm not ready with answers. But, but I find that very interesting. And, and right after the Charlottesville uh, demonstration where things got a little heated, a little difficult, and there were some things done there that, that took some lives and, and just kind of exploded into other things across the nation, there was a young man that came up to his microphone. He apparently knew the fellow very well. He called him by name, said, Paul, you have a question for me. And it was a young black man. He walked up and he said, uh, Mr. MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur, I, I, 
I really wasn't going to ask this question, but after several people texting me saying I should, I've given in to uh, the, the whole peer pressure group, and I'm going to ask the question. Here's the question. I wrote it down so you could understand. He said, what is a biblical and Christ-proclaiming view of Charlottesville, Virginia, and all that's happening recently? That was the young man's question. I find it interesting. Often a discussion that follows these tragic instances, uh, the discussion that comes from the church, unfortunately, as well as the world, winds up being a non-biblical view of the situation. Yet, John was asked, what is the biblical view? What is the view that we should take as Christians about this? Some of the things that come up as we talk about those situations, we say, why doesn't our government do something? Why does our government allow these demonstrations? We don't stop to think that that's part of our Constitution, that we all have the freedom to voice our opinion. That we ask questions like, why don't the police step in and stop it? They were there. Hey, that's a great question. Even hear people say, aren't the ones who cause an attack being funded by some group that's trying to disrupt America? And yeah, I think there could be a case made for that. Some say, why should we uh, worry about that? Why don't we worry about the financial state of America? Let's, let's get that fixed. If the financial state's fixed, then there will be no reason to ride in the streets. And we talk about that with uh, minimum wage numbers being raised, with insurance being given instead of purchased, with all kinds of things. We have those discussions. Then we say, isn't this, and this is the one I love, people say, isn't it just a diversion to make the president look bad? You ever been in one of those discussions? Yeah, it happens all the time. Then we say, you know what, that old news. That news is at fault because they won't tell the truth. That's the problem. News is at fault. If they told the truth, then things like this wouldn't stop. And there's some truth in that. And the list just goes on and on and on. But when John decided to answer the question, he answered it from a whole different angle. I'm not going to read you his whole answer. I'm going to give you the bullet points of it. John stood and looked at the man, and he hit the nail on the head when he answered his questions. He made three main points in his answer. The first, the human heart is desperately wicked. He said the human heart is desperately wicked. That's very easy to back up with the Bible, for it tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. His next point was the human heart is hostile to God. That's true. For it says we all were in sin until Jesus Christ showed up, didn't it? He also said this, fallen humanity is corrupt. And you know, there's no better statement about what's going on in the world around us today than that one. Because fallen humanity is corrupt. And guess what we're seeing? Fallen humanity doing what fallen humanity does. Corruptness. See, what the situations we see going on around us in our country tell us about the world is this the world needs Jesus the answer to the problem is not another law the answer to the problem is not a stronger police force the answer to the problem is not a president in the White House the answer to the problem is for God's church to tell the world about their savior Jesus Christ see at the end of the day the change of a presidency or the change of Congress or the change of laws makes no spiritual difference and the only way you're going to manifest a, a, a physical thing different is to change the spiritual side of a person. The answer to the problems in our world today is the fact that there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm around us. And folks, the church is losing. 
The church is losing that battle. How do we know? We've got empty seats in the place. We're not having to go to three or four services. We're very rarely wetting the waters in the pools that is behind me that we call the baptismal pool. How do I know the church is losing? There's how we know the church is losing. The church is losing ground in the spiritual battle every day. And part of the problem is, is the church looks at things with a worldview, not a biblical view. And even though we see the physical things that are going on around us, we must remember that the actual war that is happening in our presence is a war within the heart. It's a spiritual war. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 of Ephesians 6. He starts off this last section of this church letter to the Ephesians and he hits on the spiritual battle that's happening around us. And as I looked at this this small section of scripture, I saw him writing about the stand before uh, for the battle rages and I saw that there were three key points that he pointed out I think would be good for us as a church this morning to reflect on. The very first thing that he tells us there is we need to stand in the Lord. He does that in verse 10 when he says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The first thing that he says is we are to remember that we are Christ. We are to remember that we are Christ and we're in Christ and we're to stand in the strength of Christ. If you remember back just a couple of chapters, I think it was back in yeah Ephesians chapter 2. He wrote this in the very first verse. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Isn't that a picture of what I just told you was going on in the world? He goes on to say this, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. He wrote there, he says, look what's going on around you. It's this heart condition that's showing up in the physical. And guess what? what church we were once there we were once there had it not been for the first verse when it said and you he made alive we would still be there and we've got to remember we were once just like those we see tearing statues down burning cars in the street we may have never done those things but our heart was in the same condition our ultimate destiny for eternity was the exact same place a place called hell But fortunately, he didn't stop there in that second chapter. He went on to say, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace. You have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. (laughs) See, we need to stand just like Paul said right there in the Lord. Because if you've been raised from death and sin into life eternal, You are now in Christ Jesus. And notice the things that he says. He says it's by his grace that we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. He said he raised us up together with Christ Jesus. He said he he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of your works. We are his workmanship. 
We have been saved by God through His power for His glory, not that we have anything to boast of, that all we have to boast of is the cross of Jesus Christ. See, what's going on around us in the world today, this spiritual battle does not recognize the fact that they are spiritually being led by Satan. Unfortunately, church, sometimes they don't recognize the fact that we're being led by God. That's what needs to change. The only thing that's going to change the heart of those led by Satan is for them to bump into someone led by the heart by Jesus Christ and to hear the gospel message that will change their life forever. We can physically try to change it all we want, and there's not a thing that will ever happen until that heart has been changed. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know this morning that you are a different person. It's only by the grace of God that I wasn't in Charlottesville hitting somebody over the head with a club because it's only by the grace of God that I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. It's only by the faith that he gave me to believe in what he did that I'm different than them. How do we keep that message in a box? Why do we keep that message in a box? Why aren't we sharing that message with the world? See, he says that we've got to realize there's a battle around us all the time. But you know, you like I sometimes think, well, pastor, I just don't know how. I don't, I don't know that I can. I don't know I'm capable of doing that. Well, you notice he said there in that 6th chapter, the 10th verse, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. See, when you go forth with the gospel message representing Jesus Christ, you're going forth in the power of Jesus Christ. Just how powerful is Jesus Christ? He's so powerful that he raised himself from the dead. He healed broken limbs. He raised other dead people from death into life. He's also so powerful that he took this sinner headed to a place called hell and set his feet upon a path for eternity in a place called heaven. There's no greater power than the power of Jesus Christ. And you may say, Pastor, I don't think that I have the power to do it. And you're absolutely correct. If you're there in Ephesians, flip over to Philippians. It's to the right, just in case you haven't been that far in the book since we've been stuck there in that Ephesians. But in, in Philippians, there's a passage that's often quoted, but out of context. Let's try to put it in context. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, it says this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at, at last your care for me has flourished again. This is Paul writing to that Philippian church saying, look, your care finally has made it. I'm so grateful that it's made it. I really needed that. But he goes on to say, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then the verse that so many people quote in verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul writes to the Philippian church to thank them for, for the generosity, for the things that they're sending. And he makes some very powerful statements in that section of Scripture that I think we could take to heart so that we can stand in the Lord. He says there in verse 11, he says, He has learned that no matter his condition, no matter his circumstance, he's learned to be content. Have you got some challenges in your life this morning, church? Are there some things that you wish were different? 
There absolutely is for me right now. I wish I knew I had a left leg at this moment. But you know what I know? God's promised to never leave me and forsake me. And it doesn't matter that my back doesn't feel good. I've still got a home in eternity because of Jesus Christ. I'm content no matter where he's got me. Paul said to them, hey, I appreciate you sending me this stuff, but you know what I've learned? I've learned to be content in the Lord. He says in verse 12, he says he knows what it's like to live humbly as well as prosperously. (laughs) To be hungry, to be full, to be in good health, and then to suffer. But he says, even in those moments, I'm content in the Lord. He goes on to verse 13 and he, he makes the point we must learn in our own lives. It's that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The only way that you'll ever feel the strength of Jesus Christ in your life is first and foremost for him to be the Lord of your life. He must have raised you from the dead into life. Romans tells us that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I backed it up with the passages that we read this morning that were saying we were all dead in sin until Jesus Christ came along with an offer. An offer of his own body upon a tree to pay the debt for your sins. And it's not good enough to know that Jesus is a great prophet or even to recognize Jesus as God. It's not good enough to know that he was hung upon a tree and buried in a tomb and rose from the dead three days later. The intellectual knowledge of it is not good enough. You must see the fact that that cross that was standing on that hill had your name written on it. It had your name written on it because the choices you had made in your life to sin against a holy God. And this sin against a holy God brings the judgment and wrath of a holy God upon your life, and that cross was going to be your judgment. Someone was going to pay the debt. For your sin. I ask you this morning. Have you seen that cross. As yours. See when I look at the cross now. And see it as mine. You know what I see. I see a savior that crawled upon my cross. With my name on it. And outstretched his arms and said. Father kill me. I'll take it. And the word tells us that we've all sinned and deserve the cross. But if we'll believe that Jesus Christ came to die on our behalf for that sin. And we'll accept his free gift by faith in him. That the grace of God will supply for us salvation. Through his son Jesus Christ. To be in Christ Jesus you must firmly grip the base of the cross and say Jesus I believe that you died for my sins. But it doesn't end there. You must also believe he was taken from the cross and placed in a tomb. And three days later, that tomb was found to be empty. What's important about the fact the tomb was found to be empty? First and foremost, Jesus said it was going to happen. So it needed to happen for him to be God and to be truth. But it's another significant point of it happening. You see, most of the people in this world today walk around with no hope. You know why they have no hope? Because their God, the Satan... He's sending him to a place called hell that has no hope. Jesus' resurrection from the dead should make Christians the most hopeful of anybody on the face of this earth. Because this rising from the dead allowed him to say this to us. You don't know where I'm going right at the moment, but there will come a day. There will come a day that the clouds are going to part and I'm going to call your name. And you're going to be brought from where you are to where I am. 
So just as I saw the cross with my name on it and Christ hanging on the cross and him placed in a tomb, I look expectantly with hope to the sky, waiting for the day that Jesus steps forth and says, Roger, come on. You see, we have a hope in Jesus Christ. The only way we can stand in the strength of Jesus Christ is to be in Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this may be the last opportunity you ever have to hear the message. If you leave this place rejecting Jesus, your eternity is a place called hell where there's gnashing of teeth. There is no hope. It's not a great big party. You'll be in isolation, in misery, forever separated from God and everybody else. The choice is simple. Do you want to be in the presence of your Savior or do you want to be in eternity of hell forever? Those are the only two choices. And this morning to stand in the power of the Lord. You must be in the Lord through faith in what he did upon a cross for your sins. See, the days that we live in are only going to get worse for us Christians. The days that we live in are only going to get worse. We see now pastors being locked up across the world because of their belief system. We see Christians being killed in places. It has not yet hit home, but it is fast approaching There will come a day to stand in the pulpit like this and preach this message. I know that I could be at any time arrested for it. That day is fast approaching. See, the world that we lived in is corrupt. It's run by Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the airs. There will come a day that it will all be transformed as the glory of God. But that day has not yet arrived. Between now and that day, we're going to suffer. We're going to have difficulty in our life. See... God never promised us streets of gold here on earth, which is because where he is. He never promises there will be days with no tears here on earth. He never promised us that the pain of life would disappear once we became a Christian. In fact, he told us that things would definitely get tougher for us. But here's what I hold to, not God's promises to me here on earth. I hold to the promises that he has for me eternally. For God does promise us that abiding in Christ has a reward. It has a reward. There will come a day that we won't hurt anymore. There will come a day that the tears will no longer flow from our eyes. There will be a day when sin will no longer have a grip on us. There will come a day when I'll see my Savior face to face. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. We can stand strong in the Lord because we have him as our Lord and our Savior. But not only does Paul tell us there in that sixth chapter of Ephesians, we need to stand strong in the Lord, but he also says we need to stand against the devil. He tells us there in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. In some of your translation, it may say schemes or schemings, but there's this plan that they have and and what we look at it happen around us in the world, we, we think the enemy is ISIS or Antifa or KKK or whatever letters they throw out, just fill in the blank. There's some group out there that we think is, is the enemy. But what Paul reminds us of is that the enemy has not changed since the first chapter of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. He reminds us that there's been no change in the enemy since day one because the enemy is Satan. 
the devil. So how do we stand against the, the devil? First, you've got to recognize your enemy. He tells us there in the 12th verse, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice that's not a capital H. The heavenly places being the, the lower heaven, the first heaven around us that Satan is in control of, the Bible says. And, and our battle really is against flesh and blood in a sense, but more importantly, it is against those principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual hosts. The war that is raging around us is a spiritual war, and we must recognize that enemy in our life. We must not only recognize that enemy that's around us, but we must recognize his attack. We must recognize his attack. Satan has a plan of attack on our lives. He has a plan, and we must be prepared by understanding what the plan is. And his plan is very simple. It's not a plan that's very elaborate. He doesn't have a great big drawn-out scheme. His plan is extremely simple. Satan attacks our thoughts. That's where Satan attacks. He attacks our thoughts. How do we know that? Remember the Garden of Eden. If you remember chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Satan speaking, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? All he simply did was throw out a question to get the thought process and the heart of, of Eve and Adam really both generating thoughts. And if you remember, he planted in Eve's mind a seed of doubt. He got her thinking, and the seed of doubt grew into a tree of sin. Because her answer was incorrect, she said, Oh yeah, we're, we're not even to touch it which was not God's instruction. See, one little thought in her mind turned her heart towards sin. How does Satan attack us? By, by attacking us in our, our thought process. He gets you to question what God has said. He tells you it makes absolutely no logical sense to do it the way the Bible says. There's another way that we should do it. He makes you think that the Bible is an antiquated uh, book written thousands of years ago. And, and that to be sure, in, in that length of time, the, the human mind has got well more advanced. And, and the way we think is better than what's written thousands of years ago. See, before you know it... <laughs> As the Bible says, that sin that's crouching by the door has latched on with the teeth of a lion. Before you know it, when you turn your attention from what God says to reasoning in your own mind what should be done, it says Satan's crouching by the door. Sin's right there waiting for the opportunity. And the minute your mind shifts from a biblical worldview to a worldly worldview, Satan's on you with claws and teeth. <laughs> See, that's why we must recognize our enemy and recognize his attack. The third thing quickly we must recognize is that we need to respond biblically. That's why Paul says in Ephesians uh, 6, 11, that's what he says, put on the whole armor of God. We must equip ourselves for the battle. We must be prepared for a defense against those attacks that are coming because we all know way too well that the attacks are coming. Paul later in the chapter is going to describe each piece of those armor. We're going to go through those, but... In this blanket statement, he's telling us that it is a necessity. We must have God's defense system in place. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it through the strength and power of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 has a, a verse about this that I think is 
It's very pointed. It says this starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How do we respond biblically? We realize we're not just walking in the flesh. We have this spiritual side of us that is also at war. Our weapons have to be God's battle weapons that we'll go on to talk about as we move through Ephesians chapter 6. And it must come on us. We must put it on. We must have it prepared before the attack happens. See, though we walk in flesh in this, this spiritual battle, our weapons are God's. And it says in verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We need to already have our mind under the authority of Christ long before the attack comes. By having our mind saturated with the Word of God, by repentance of our sins before God, by obedience to His command in our life every day, we need to already have our thoughts set by God. By doing this, our worldview becomes a biblical worldview. We begin to see the world as God sees the world. He sees the world as a gathering of people with a desperately wicked heart that's hostile towards God, that have fallen and are headed to a place called hell if they never come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's why Jesus, at the end of his ministry, before going home, said, Go to the uttermost parts of the world and tell them who I am. Because God looks down and sees a world that is lost, and he desires for them to know his son, Jesus Christ. He has left us here on this earth with an obedience command to go forth and tell them about his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to respond biblically. So we must Point one, stand in the Lord. Number two, we must stand against the devil. And last, very quickly, we must stand till the end. In Ephesians 6.13, it says this, Therefore, take up that whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He's telling us, church, don't give up. Don't turn our vision in, leave our vision turned out to a lost and dying world. Stand firmly in the face of the evil spiritual attack around us with the mighty power of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There will be many spiritual battles in our lives. We realize that and those battles will change for each of us as we mature in Christ. The things now that is, as maybe you're not mature in Christ that are, you're battling, once you get over those things, you'll wind up with other challenges as you mature in Christ. The battle's not going to end until Jesus Christ comes back for us. But he says this, don't worry about the battle because there's a war out there. For every war is made up of individual battles. And each of us have our individual battles. We as a church have our individual battles. But there is a war that is raging. And we must fight. Not till the battle in our life is finished. But until the war is won. And the Bible has some great news about that. Christ has already won the war. 
See, all the way back in the book of Genesis, when I said it showed up that Satan, as the enemy, has not changed since the book of Genesis, guess what? The answer to Satan's attack has not changed since the book of Genesis. For there in Genesis 3, it tells us that it, he, Adam, Eve, and Satan are told something about their lives that are going to be ahead of them. If you remember, Eve was going to suffer through her, her childbearing. Uh, Adam was going to have to lo- t- uh, toil and labor to bring forth food. But also something was said to Satan. He said, there is going to be one that comes. But you're going to give him a little nip on the heel. You're going to get him for a minute. But he's going to take that heel and he's going to crush your head. Guess what happened when Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb that Sunday morning? He stomped the head of Satan in the dirt. Christ has already won the war. Yet we are still in the battle until he returns victorious as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Until that day, it is our job to fight the battle that's before us. In church, it is a spiritual battle. Christ has already won the war, but manifested around us is the evil that is in the world. We are to remain in the fight. We are to carry the battle flag of Christ high in that fight. We are to pull down the strongholds of the enemy through the word of God and through the power of our Savior. And we are most definitely, church, to rescue the dying that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The ones who are headed to a place called hell. By the grace of God, we need to share the gospel message with them before it's too late. I look for Jesus to come and I pray that he'll come today. But you know one reason I hope he doesn't come today? Because I know someone who doesn't know Jesus and I want them to have that opportunity. Because the day he parts the cloud and calls my name to come home, their opportunity has ended. Church, we need to share the gospel in everything that we do. I love this statement and I'll close with this. It's said by uh, Charles Spurgeon, a, a pastor from years ago, long time ago. He says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Church, There is a battle, a spiritual battle for the souls of the lost in this world today. And we need to stand up because that battle is raging. We need to stand in the Lord. We need to stand against the devil and the power of Jesus Christ. And we need to stand till the end. To the very end. Not only the end where we're called, but to the very end of that person's life who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And if they go to hell, they should be trying to pull their feet from our mighty grasp as we share the gospel with them. We need to be praying for the lost. We need to be sharing the gospel to the lost. You want to change this world we live in? Live like a Christian. Do what he's called you to do. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.